You are listening to the Living Way Church podcast. For more information about Living Way Church, go to livingwaychurch.cc. They were living in a city that was uh, known for its crazy days and wild nights. It was a city that was a port town that was uh, big on gambling and big on entertainment and big on idol worship. And it was a town that was uh, frequented by most of the people in Rome at one time or another, right off the coast, Corinth. And in this city... Jesus was changing lives. Paul had gone to that city, began to preach the gospel. People were responding to the gospel. Now living in a culture that was opposite of their walk with God, they were struggling to live out their faith in a culture that was going in the opposite direction. So Paul began to write them letters as he heard about their struggles and was responding to some of their questions. So over the last couple of weeks, the Apostle Paul has addressed all kinds of areas. Last week in chapter 8, he asked, uh, or rather answered a very big question. And the question was, is it wrong to eat meat that was once offered to an idol? Now, how many of you guys have asked yourself that question this week? <laughs> Probably not many of us. It's not really something that we deal with today. Rather, today's question would be, is it wrong to fill in the blank? Is it wrong to, could be anything. Is it wrong to drink? Is it wrong to dance? Is it wrong to get tattoos? Is it wrong to, you know, to go to this place or to watch this movie? Is it wrong? That is the bigger question for us today. As Paul was addressing the challenge of being a Christian with the freedom of Jesus Christ that we have, that we're saved by faith, not by our actions and our works, and how to balance out that freedom with the gray areas of life that can sometimes cause a lot of division among churches and Christians. So for them, it was eating food that was offered to an idol and then sold in the market. And for us, it's fill in the blank. It's your question. It's what you are dealing with. So Paul's long answer for them began in chapter 8, and it continues to chapter 10. And in chapter 8, he says, well, an idol is nothing, so you don't have to worry about it. So uh, you're, you're eating food that's just food. But not everybody knows that. So he says, be mindful of that lest you cause anyone to stumble. And then he says in the second part of chapter 8, the bigger issue is that everything we do should be governed through love. It should be through love and concern for others. It should be that love trumps our freedoms. So today, Paul takes this freedom question and he, he applies it to his own life. With something that is actually a two-track chapter, he's going to talk about a right that ministers have, and then he's going to talk about how he gave up that right for the sake of the gospel with them. And the question is, he's going to talk about, should a minister be paid for preaching the gospel? Apparently, some of them were bothered by Paul getting a paycheck. Now, I want you to realize, Corinthians was not a poor city. This was a port city. So it was filled with wealthy merchants and people. It had one of the largest sporting events in the history of Rome that was hosted there, which we'll talk about in a minute. And it was known for its entertainment and gambling. And those that were coming to Christ were probably well off. But yet, they were still looking down on Paul and getting paid for anything that had to do with ministry. So Paul uses this example, and he illustrates what freedom looks like with a little frustration because you can tell in the way that he's talking, he's a little upset with them, but he's also using this as a teaching moment. So let's jump in. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul's personal example. He says, am I not free? That means I'm not a slave, and I don't work for free. Okay, and then he says, and I, he says, am I not an apostle? He says, have you not seen my business card? My, my business card says messenger of Jesus Christ. Do you not know who I work for? And then he says, have I not seen the Lord Jesus? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Now, Jesus appeared to Paul after the resurrection, and he says, I'm not just talking to you about Jesus. I know him. All right, we have a personal face-to-face -face relationship. I've met with him and talked with him, so I know what I'm talking about. And he says, are you not the result 
of my work in the Lord. He says, man, you're, you're the fruit of my work. And it says, and even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am for you, for you are the seal or the proof of my apostleship or my authority in the Lord. He says, man, I'm a leader. I am, I am called and appointed by Jesus himself. I know Jesus. I plant churches. I poured into your life. And he says, this is my defense to those who sit in judgment of me. What's the judgment? That he should get paid. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. And this is how we know this. He says, as much as anyone, I have rights just like you. Now, I want you to know this. Every person who bows the knee to Jesus, the Bible says, is a minister and is a missionary to the world in which they live. So if you are a Christian, you are a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you are a Christian. If you are a Christian, you are a missionary. God has planted you in your work or in your neighborhood and in your family to be a minister and to be a missionary to those people. But the Bible also tells us that there are those that are called to equip and to shepherd and to train and to lead the body of Christ for a living. We see this in Ephesians chapter 6. So he's about to have a two-track answer to freedom. And he says, he's about to make a defense for paid vocational ministry. Now, I want you to follow this reason that he's going to go here because this is like one of those things that churches never talk about unless they preach through the Bible. And that's what we do. We like to preach through the Bible so it hits on everything. So this is something maybe you've never heard about before, maybe you've never even read before or never heard a message on, but this is what Paul says, his defense for paid vocational ministry. He says this, don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to eat and to celebrate and to live life and do more than just survive? He says, don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and even Cephas, which is Peter? He says, listen, man, Jesus' own brothers are married and they travel and they get paid for ministry. The apostles, they all are married and they uh, travel and they get paid for ministry. Peter himself is one of those guys and he says, now, don't I have the right to enjoy my life, to come home to a woman that I love? Don't I have the right to have kids and to know that we're not scraping by to survive? Don't I have the right as much as these guys? I shouldn't have to beg. And he says this, or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to work for a living? That is to work outside of ministry for a living. Now, he says, they can have a family and get paid, but why not us? So then he gives three reasons why there is a defense for paid vocational ministry. But again, he's answering a bigger question about what is freedom. Okay, so keep that in mind. So while he's explaining this position on paid ministry, it's for the purpose of talking about a freedom. Okay, so follow along. So he says this, reason one, it's common sense. Verse 7, he says, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Nobody joins the army and has to worry about where they're going to eat and sleep and dress, right? The army will take care of you. You are serving others and getting paid for it. And he says, what about the one who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? He says, man, even a farmer will eat from the harvest of his own crops, right? Even a farmer does. He feeds himself from his harvest. And then he says, who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? He says, even a shepherd lives and survives off of the sheep. He says, what about the one who's in the army of God? What about the one who is sowing spiritual seed into your life? What about the one who is shepherding the family of God or the flock of God? He says, people don't understand ministry. And, you know, many of you guys don't. Many of you think that I don't do anything other than preach on Sunday. People ask, what do you do the rest of the week? Well, I, I play golf, play video games, and sleep in and watch Netflix, you know, because that's exactly what you think I do. I haven't played golf in years. I don't play video games, and I might squeeze in a Netflix show every now and then. But my life is so full, so busy, but many of you think I don't do anything. People don't understand how ministry works. We're going to talk about this in a second. So reason one, it's common sense. It's work. 
and you reap the fruit of that work. Second reason, he says, is it's a biblical command. Look at this. He says, do I say this merely on human authority? He says, this is my, my opinion. He says, doesn't the law, the scriptures, the Old Testament say the same thing? This is a biblical principle. He says, for it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain. That means you're not going to starve your animals that are working for you. Why would you do the? Why would you do that? And then he says, "Is it the ox that God is more concerned about?" Verse ten. Surely he says this for our sake. He says this again. This is a quote of Deuteronomy twenty-five, and he says it again to Peter in First Peter. Sorry, in First Timothy chapter five. He says, "Listen, you don't starve your work animals. You feed them and provide for them, and want them to be the healthiest and the best and the strongest they can do to give you the greatest work." Is God more concerned for the animals or for the people? He says, well, he's more concerned for the people. He says, yes, this was written for us. Because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, he says, is it too much to reap a material harvest from you? He says, it's too much to make a living and to be provided for, for the work that we put in. He says, if others have the right of support from you, shouldn't we all have it all the more? Shouldn't we have it all the more? He says, listen, uh, write this down. I have the right to be reasonably paid as a minister of the gospel. This is what Paul is saying. He says, I have the right to be reasonably paid as a minister of the gospel. Now, our dryer uh, died this week. Uh, we didn't know what happened. We just kind of woke up and it, it turned on. It, turned on, but it didn't start. So we called a repair guy, and man, they came out really fast that same day, and it was a, an issue. The belt had broken, so they replaced the belt and had a couple other parts, and he says, all right, that's 216, and I said, hey, you know what? I don't think I should pay you 20 bucks. You know, great job, good work. It works fine. Thank you so much. Here's 20. Have a good day. I'm a thief, right? If I did that, I'm stealing, if someone comes in and does work for me, someone say, you work on your car, that was about $1,000. Eh, works great. Thanks so much. Here's 100 You know, God bless you. We're stealing. He says, listen, if you pay those that work, and that's reasonable, it's also biblical, he says, to pay for those that work among you in the ministry. Now, we have the right to support that is reasonable, and comparable. Let me explain this. That means pastors should make what is comparable to their community. That means you should make comparable to what your community and your church and in the community that you live in make. For instance, if you have a church in India, you should make what the, what the community there makes. Or in Mexico, or in Russia, or in South Dallas, or in North Dallas, you should make what is reasonable and comparable. Reasonable being not you know, you're not there to make money. You're not there to get rich in the gospel. First Timothy chapter 6, the apostle Paul says, yes, we should get paid. But if there's anyone here trying to get rich off the gospel, they're not, they're not a true minister of the gospel. He says there's a reasonable, there's a comparable, and then there's thieves. He says reasonable. And he has a right to this, but this is what he says in verse 12, the second part. He says, but we did not use this right. On the contrary... We put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. We should have been paid, he said, but for your sake, we did not press this issue. I want you to write this down. He says, I chose personal sacrifice over personal rights for your sake. Because remember, the bigger question is, should a Christian do blank? Should a Christian fill in the blank? Should a Christian drink? Should a Christian, you know, watch this? Should a Christian dress like this? Should a Christian do this? And the question is, yes, you have the right to do it. You have every right to do it. But sometimes, he says, you say no to those rights for other people's personal sake. He says, the biggest right that I can compare this to is, is you, he says, have personal preferences that you have to make a call on. He says, let me give you a bigger one. My life depends upon an income. I have every right to receive an income for the work that I do in the ministry. I have that right. 
But for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of you, I choose sacrifice over that right for your sake. This is the big picture. This is the big picture. He says, if I'm willing to deny myself such an important right for your sake, he says, then I think that maybe you can deny your right to eat meat that was sacrificed to others for their sake. Okay? He says this, rather than complaining, I just kept on preaching. He says, I have the right. I have the freedom. Just like you do in some of your preferences and opinions and freedoms. He says, but like I gave up this serious big right for your sake, I think you can do the same in some of those little choices that you make. And by the way, this, this is a question. Should a minister assert his right or release this right? Should a Christian minister, should a pastor assert this right for pay or should he release this right, you know, like Paul did in this situation? Well, I want you to write this down. The answer to that is they should do what serves the gospel best. And if they don't get paid, don't let it stop you. This is at the heart of what he's saying. I want you to know this. Paul got paid by other churches. He got paid for ministry. He didn't get paid by Corinth. He didn't press it with them because their immaturity, not their inability, but their immaturity was something he took into account. And he said, man, I don't want you to miss Jesus, so I'm not going to press this issue with you so that you don't miss the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe you'll grow into that maturity. But here's the point. If you're a pastor, if you're a minister, if you're a Christian, should, should you get paid? Yeah. But if you don't, what, you should, what should you do? Well, keep preaching the gospel. Just keep preaching. I want to tell you something. There's 350,000 churches in America. All right? 95% of those churches are under 100 people. 90% of them are under 75 people. A pastor can get paid when there's about 150 people. So that means that 95% of pastors in America don't get paid or get paid very little from their church. Almost every pastor I know has a job outside of the church. Most of them do. Now, 0.4% of churches are over 1,000. So the Dallas Metroplex has a lot of churches. You probably drove by some on the way here. Most of them were probably smaller, less than 100 people. That pastor's preaching on Sunday and going to work on Monday. That's 90-plus percent of churches in America. And you know what? Those pastors, their heart is not to, to, to shear the sheep and to get money and to get rich. 95% of pastors are not making anything other than preaching the gospel. You know, two people... Uh, two things come to mind when people think of me as a minister is, uh, number one, uh, when I tell people I'm a pastor, they all of a sudden get super spiritual. Yeah? It's like, yeah, I used to play golf. I don't hardly play golf at all anymore. It's been years. And, and so I'll get on a, sometimes you'll walk on with foursome, you know, and, and there's somebody there and then we're talking. And as soon as I say I'm a minister, boom, their language cleans up and they, they get all churchy. Like, yeah, I go to church. And like, oh, where do you go to church? I go to that one that's, um, you know, uh, down. Uh, uh, they, don't have, they don't know the name. It's because they probably haven't been there in like three years. And, but they get all spiritual, right? And they get all like, because they just look at me, oh, this poor little guy. He can't handle bad words. And this poor guy, all of a sudden, he's probably ignorant and believes in this, like, old stuff and just archaic and just ancient. And, and so I, be, I begin to be treated like a child as they get really overly spiritual. So they either get spiritual or they think I'm a charlatan. And they start looking at me as someone who's stealing money, cheating money, that I'm a fake, I'm a fraud, I'm trying to rip people off, just like all other pastors. Let me tell you something. 95% uh, of pastors are barely making it. They're barely making it. Their heart is just the gospel. Their heart is just to preach the gospel. And they're not getting paid and they're doing it just like Paul says, just so the name of Jesus can be known. I want you to, I want you to hear these uh, scary statistics. 90% 
of pastors work outside of church out of necessity. Now, I did off and on uh, over the years with Living Way. I've worked at Texas Credit Union as a teller for several years. I had my own window washing business for several years. I uh, had an online business uh, for several years called Ted's Toy Box where I sold records and Star Wars figures. Nerd alert. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so uh, I sold records and Star Wars figures in uh, Ted's Toy Box. And by the way, my logo for, uh, for my um, Ted's Clear Factor, which was my window business, was the Star Wars font. So again, nerd alert. All right. So uh, I, I worked outside because, you know, my goal was to preach the gospel. And I'll do whatever it takes. I'm not here to make the money. I'm here to see salvation. I'm here to see people in their lives change. If they don't get paid, uh, they... They, they, still, they, still, they still minister the gospel. And if you do get paid, you better work hard. You better be one worthy of that labor. Most think that we slack off all week and, and don't do much, but it is actually quite brutal. To be a pastor, it, it can literally kill you. Pastors have the worst heart conditions, uh, blood pressure issues. They have high levels of heart attack uh, problems and, and stress issues and ulcers. Um, the medical problems of most pastors I know are related deeply to this, to this stress that they deal with every day. Listen to this. The average pastor works 50 to 60 hours in church plus a job outside of church. Okay, 30 to 40% of pastors work over 70 hours a week. There's easily weeks where I work over 70, all right? 50 to 60 is the average for a pastor a week to work at the church, and if they work outside, it's more. 70% of pastors say they are extremely stressed all the time. 90% of pastors feel fatigued and tired all the time. 100% of pastors know a colleague who left ministry because of burnout, church conflict, or moral failure. I sat with a pastor friend of mine Friday, and we were talking about this, and both of us know several people who had left the ministry for moral failure, stress, burnout, or church conflict, just got overwhelming. Um, That is 100% of us know those people. 70% of pastors have a lower self-esteem since entering ministry. 30% of seminarian students after they leave Bible college, only 30% are still in ministry seven years later. 80% of pastors say ministry has negatively affected their family. This is the most shocking, I think, and makes my heart sad, is 80% of pastors' wives wish their husbands chose a different profession. Why? Because People don't understand the ministry and the toll, the heart. See, you've got the burden of your life that you're, that you're bearing. You know whose burden I bear? My family and your 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 family. And not just the burden of your life, but we are bearing the burden of the, your spiritual condition. And it is heavy. It is brutal. And so when people say, pastors, eh, You know, they don't do anything. It just makes us all want to punch you in the throat. (laughs) Every week, pastors leave the ministry. They are deep fried or they stay afraid of their own people, pandering to the popularity of the positions of the people. That means if you have a lot of money, they pander sometimes to those people because their finances are so thin that they're afraid to lose their givers. Not because they're money hungry, but they're worried sick over the condition. Now, that's a terrible position to have somebody in. And uh, so churches, they're, they're fighting the church and they're fighting their own depression. I know I did. I fought depression for years in ministry. It wasn't until I got cancer in 2009 that God began to set me free from this white clinched knuckle position that I took on the church, holding it so tightly, thinking that I could just work harder and it, be, and it would be better. You know, when I got sick, God said, you know, push the stop button and you just let go of it. I'll, I'll take care of it. And when I came back healthy, man, thank God my elders, the elders that you love and that you care for looked out for me and make sure that I was in a healthy place. And for the last several years, man, I have... I have not battled any kind of depression or heavy heart over our church. I just trust the Lord. See, when I told my mom that I was going into ministry, I remember when I was a young, young man, I, I told my mom I was going into ministry, and she's like, um, why? 
first of all. Um, she's like, don't you know you're going to be poor? <laughs> it's like, uh, I said, maybe. And she goes, well, what are you going to do for a living? I said, I'm going to be a pastor. She's like, do you have a plan B? Do you have a plan B? Like, I don't have, this is my plan A, B, C, D. This is my plan. This is what God has called me to do. And she's like, I remember so clearly. She goes, okay. Now, she loved Jesus, but she didn't want me to live like most pastors that she knew over the years who struggled and whose family struggled. A living way, I worked outside of the church many times. Uh, I would do it all over again because I would rather uh, be and do what God's called me to do, whether I'm paid or not, um, which, you know, fortunately this is the only thing I do right now, and I'm thankful for that. Uh, and, uh, you know, we have elders that look out for me. But this is what he says. Verse 13, again, he's making a defense for reasonable compensation. He says, don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple and those that serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? See, this is an Old, Old Testament mandate for the priests in the Old Testament. He says, the priests that serve the body, they get paid and they survive and they get fed through the body. He says, in the same way, the Lord, whenever you see that, he's talking about Jesus. So he says, in the same way the Lord Jesus commanded those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. That's in Matthew 10 and in Luke 10. He says this, Jesus himself commanded, and here's the third reason. Reason number one, common sense. Reason number two, biblical command. Reason number three, very simple. Jesus said so. So when it comes to should a pastor, should a minister be paid, yes, if possible, yes. And if you're a minister and you're not paid, should you stop being a minister of the gospel? No, no way. You keep preaching the gospel. Anyone who preaches the gospel, Paul says, has the right to be supported by those who he preaches the gospel to and shepherds. See, many people think pastors should be poor, that their families should be dressed in rags, and that they should never buy anything new, and that they should never go on vacation, that they should drive crap cars and eat beans and rice and peanut butter and jelly their whole life and never have a nice dinner. That's how most people see ministry and missionaries and people. This contributes to why so many ministry families fall apart and churches fail. Let me tell you something. What is your opinion? I'm a, my, I've got daughters in the room, so... Pretend you're not here. What is your opinion of most pastors' kids? Not mine, because they're awesome. <laughs> most people think they're hellions. They're crazy. And, you know, their songs been written about it since the 40s and 50s. All of us have this reputation. We all know somebody whose daddy was a preacher, right? And, and, and now they're not living for God. Why do you think that is? It's not because the gospel isn't working it's because their dad or their mom has spent their whole life investing into other people's lives while neglecting their family and neglecting their marriage, trying to build a church and disciple your family and your marriage, and sometimes neglecting their own family and kids. And as a result of their pursuit, they lose their own family. It shouldn't be that way. And oftentimes they do that because they're a staff of one person doing everything. 95% of all churches are under 100. So you got 95% of pastors just barely hanging on financially, neglecting their family in hopes that maybe they can just bring a few more people in. I thank the Lord that my elders, that our elders, have looked out for me and made sure that this hasn't happened. This is why we support missionaries. This is why we support other ministers, and this is why I get paid. And this is, I think, a big part as to why my girls love Jesus, in spite of you looking at them, looking down on them, or judging them. They love Jesus. I'm not saying that you've done that, but some of you have. Verse 15, he says, and I'm not writing this in the hope that you'll do such things for me. He says, I'm not writing this so that I can finally get paid from you. He says, I would rather die. <laughs> Man, that's heavy. Rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. That What's the boast? That I'm doing this for the gospel of Jesus, not for you. I mean, not for pay, I should say. I'm doing it for your sake, but not for pay. He says, um, he says I boast in God's provision. 
He says, for when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast since I am compelled to preach. A woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. That's one of my favorite lines in the whole Bible. Woe to me if I do not preach. Woe to me. You know, I started preaching when I was 16 years old. I started preaching in Bible studies and Bible classes, in my school, in my Bible clubs, at my youth group, at my youth camp. I started preaching every opportunity. I started going to detention centers, to uh, orphanages. I started going to, to rehab centers. I started going to jails. I started going anywhere that would have me. And I never went in and said, all right, I need a green room with only the red M&Ms and three bottles of, of the nicest sparkling water, you know, brand, not off-brand, you know, I didn't go in saying I need a, I need a silence room with, a, with those little ocean waves machine and I need to have a moment of silence for 30 minutes before it starts. You know, I just wanted to preach the gospel. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. Pastors and people and ministers that come in with these kind of like writers, I think, man, they're missing this woe to me thing. You know what their reward is? Their reward is red, their reward is red M&Ms. That's their reward. Our reward is is that the gospel is being preached, right? He says that's the reward. This is the bigger one. He says, he says, I love that heart. Let me ask you a question. Anybody here going to work tomorrow? Raise your hand if you're going to work tomorrow. All right? If you went into work tomorrow and they told you where you're not getting paid anymore, uh, probably not ever, uh, or at least definitely not this week, would you stay there that week? I don't know anybody that would say, yeah. I love this place. <laughs> you, know, you show up to work to get a paycheck, right? I don't know anybody in any other place, in any other job, in any other profession, in any other calling outside of ministry that would work for free all the time and still have to work another job to pay for that work, but only in ministry. Woe to me if I don't preach. That's the heart of most pastors. That's the heart of most pastors and ministers and missionaries. I would do this. There's years when I didn't pay. There's seasons when I didn't get paid at Living Way Church, and there were seasons when I've had to work, but woe to me if I don't preach. I'm still doing it. He says, verse 17, if I preach voluntarily, that's willingly I have a reward, self-satisfaction. He says, but if I preach not voluntarily, that means by God's calling alone, I'm simply discharging the trust committed to me. That means I'm showing obedience to God's calling. He says, what then is my reward? It's just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it for free to you, and so not to make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. See, remember, this is the big picture here. He's saying the underlying message is I have the right to be paid for what I do, and you still haven't paid me. That's the underlying message. The big overlying point is this. Preaching the gospel to you is more important than getting paid. All right? He says, if I can give up such a major thing in my life so that you can know Jesus, he says, and I think you can give up some of your little personal preferences so that people can know Jesus. That's the big picture. He uses this heavy-handed example to show that you can give up things for Jesus. If I can give this up, you can give up your little things. See, chapter 8, he says, this liberty that we have is about the give up freedom produces liberty. Chapter 8 says that we live as an example to not cause another to stumble. But chapter 9, he says, living with an intention as to cause someone to discover. We have great freedom, but we should at times sacrifice our rights for the growth of others and for the sake of the gospel. So he explains this freedom. By the way, this passage, chapter 8 and 9, is often used as, as a defense for our rights to do stuff. It happens all the time. People say, well, chapter 8 says I can do this. Chapter 8 says I can do this. Chapter 10 says I can do this. He's not saying this as a defense for your rights. He's actually saying this as a defense for your sacrifice of those rights. That is a game changer. So he says this, verse 19, he says, Though I am free, I'm not a slave to anyone and belong to no one, 
He says, however, I've made myself a slave to everyone as to win as many as possible. Turn to some, someone and say, to win as many as possible. See, this is the point. He says, man, I'm doing all of this to win as many as possible. I want you to write this down. It's not what I can gain. It's who I can gain. It's not about how much I can get into my savings account or into my pocket or into my house or how many possessions. It's about how many people can I win. It's about how many lives can I touch and change. It's not how many tickets can I collect, how many prizes can I win. It's about how many people can I gain. How many will win the knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, Paul said, I get paid from other churches, but not from you. And I didn't make it a big deal for the gospel's sake. Instead of complaining, I kept on preaching. He says, that's what it's all about, to win as many as possible. See, this has got to be our goal, people, to win as many as possible. To win as many as possible to the truth and knowledge and healing of Jesus Christ. This is what it's all about. That is the heart of Jesus. This is why Jesus wept over a city. As he looked at Jerusalem, tears flowed down his face, weeping over the heart condition. That's why Jesus wept over people. That's why he had great compassion over those that were hurting. Listen, there are hundreds, and there are thousands, and there are millions, and there are billions of people in this world that have yet to hear of the saving knowledge and healing of Jesus Christ. God, help us to move us, empower us to take this gospel to the cities and to the world to win as many as possible. Turn to someone and say, to win as many as possible. To win as many as possible. He says, this is how I played out. This is why he says this next part. I want to win anybody and everybody. And he says, for this reason, verse 20, he says, for this reason, to the Jews, I become like a Jew. As to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law. So as to win those under the law. He says, man, when I'm with my Jewish brothers, I eat kosher. I eat clean, and, and I don't eat certain things, I don't drink certain things, and I don't wear certain things as to win them. And he says, to those not having the law, I became like the one not having the law. He said, man, when I'm with them, I eat lobster and shrimp and a lot of BLTs. He said, but I do that, he says, though I'm not free from God's law, but under Christ's law, spiritual law. He said, but I do this so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I become weak. Now, weak means those that have lots of restrictions and rules. To those that have a conviction of a lot of rules and restrictions, I become like that. And I accommodate them. He says, I become all things to all people so that by all possible means, I might save some. I want you to write this down. I adjust my life out of love, he says. I adjust my life out of love. He says, when I'm with people, they're more important than me. They're more important than my preferences. They're more important than my freedoms and my own rights. And I adjust myself out of love. Some of you guys say, well, I don't care what other people think. Man, I'm me. Nobody tells me. Nobody puts baby in a corner. You know? <laughs> Nobody tells me what to do. Nobody tells me what I can't do. Nobody, nobody can. I'm free. Man, the Bible says so. 1 Corinthians 8 says so. I'm free. But listen, we give up those rights for the sake of others, and I adjust my life out of love. Well, you say, well, I don't care. Well, you should. This is not about hypocrisy. This is about, this is not hypocritical. This is accommodating. So aren't you like being hypocritical? No, I'm being accommodating. This is called, are you ready? It's called maturity. See, a little child has to have their way all the time. But an adult accommodates. A mature person accommodates those around them. It's time, Paul says, you grow up. He said this in chapter 1. 
True freedom is putting the gospel first and others above yourself. This is how I do it. I get to know people. I, I meet them where they are. I relate to them where they are so that I can tell them about the love of Jesus where they are so that I might win some, so that I might win as many as possible. And this is why he does this. Verse 23, he says, why do I do this? I love this. He says, I do this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. What are the blessings of the gospel? I'll tell you what the blessings of the gospel are. Seeing a life set free. There is nothing like the blessing of seeing people set free, of seeing people delivered, of seeing someone forgiven, of seeing someone whose life was broken now healed, someone who felt depressed and lonely to see them now walk with new hope and a fresh outlook in future. The blessings of the gospel are seeing the sinner set free, the bound chains drop off. It's about seeing someone given new direction and life transformation. That's the blessing. He says, that's why I do it. I do it for you. I do it so that I can see you set free. That's the blessing. In Romans, he says, in 1.16, he says this. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? He says, for it is the power of God for salvation, for anyone that will believe. He says, man, the gospel brings so much change. I will never be ashamed of it. I love seeing what it does in people's lives. I will never be afraid of what they think of me. I will never be shut down by what people, you know, put upon me. What society, culture, what other people tell me, no, I can't help it. I'm not ashamed because I know how much it will change their life, how much it will set them free. And I will do this until the day I die. Woe to me if I don't preach. I do this as to win as many as possible. He says, if I get paid, great. That's justified and biblical. But if I don't, I'll never stop preaching the gospel. He says, I love you too much. At this point, I imagine Paul leans back and says, Woo, you know, he's kind of all shaken up a little bit. I can imagine him like getting up and stretching, going, you know, just getting all like wound up. And he's like, how can I get this winning mentality of lives into their heart, into their spirit? He says, I'm really spending a lot of time on this. How can I really drive this home? I can imagine him maybe stretching, taking a walk, looking out the window, maybe taking a walk outside, and he, he sees the city of Ephesus where he's at at the time, and he sees maybe some stadiums, and he goes, ah, I know. I know how to drive this point home, the Isthmus Games. What's that mean? Well, look what he says next. He, I can see him, imagine him rushing back. And he says, how can I really drive this home? This is what he says. The next verse, he says, don't you know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize. Run in such a way as to get the prize. He basically says, you like to win? You like to win? You see, Corinth was the location for the Isthmian Games. It was the second largest sporting event in ancient Rome's history ever, second only to the Olympiad. Hundreds of thousands of people would gather in Corinth. Isthmian was just outside of town, and Corinth was the host. In fact, they had one amphitheater that sat 20,000 people. And this event was broken up into three sections. It was really big. It was bigger than the Olympiads in what it did. The first part was a whole week of just horse races. The second one was sporting events, running and activities and feats of strength. And the third one was Roman Idol. It was a singing competition. It was, that's what they did. And so this Isthmian Games drew hundreds of thousands of people every two years. And they would pack out the city. And one thing was on everybody's mind, winning. Winning. Paul's like, how can I bring this home? You guys like to win, right? You guys like to win? He says this. He says, we'll run in such a way as to win, as to get that prize. Now, what's the prize? The prize is not salvation. And the prize is not heaven. He's been talking about winning souls. 
I do this as to win as many as possible. He says, you want to win souls? You got to realize every soul will only be won by one person. It will either be won by Christ or be won by the enemy. That's it. He says, you need to run in such a way as if there's only one possible place, only one possible winner for their life. And you're going to run in such a way as to win that person. This is not about heaven. The whole context of the chapter is about winning souls, doing whatever it takes to win as many as possible. So he says, run as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games, the Isthmus games, what they were thinking, goes into strict training. They, they, they do it to, to, to get a crown. Now the crown there was a wreath crown uh, made of pine branches. Uh, he says, that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever or a reward that will last forever. He says, therefore, do not run like someone running aimlessly. He says, I do not fight like a boxer beat in the air, like a shadow boxer. He says, man, I know my foe. I know my enemy. He says, no, I strike a blow to my body and I make it my slave. ESV says, I discipline my body to keep it under control. This does not mean that you self-harm yourself into submission to God. Some of the early monks used to actually beat themselves, hit themselves, and cut themselves, and deprive themselves, thinking that this verse meant that you have to discipline your body physically. Listen, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, designed and loved by God. He would never tell you or support self-harm ever. This is figurative speaking, saying, I will tell my body what to do. I will discipline my body. Why? So that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. What's the prize? People. I live a life of freedom and self-control as to not lose people. The whole issue of chapter 8, 9, and 10 is the things we give up to win people, to win as many as possible. So he, I want you to end with this thought. I want to end with like five minutes on how to be a winner. How to be a winner, not a wiener, okay? How to run the race, how to win, not just run it, but win. And how to be a contender. Here's the first thing, hunger. He says run in such a way as to get the prize. You got to want to win. I think of this. This is a, a toy from our dog's toy basket. We had a girl that uh, in our church, she's in service today, who used to bring her dog to service in her purse back in the theater. Good thing I didn't have a squeaky toy then or there might have been barking in service. That yeah, was you. Uh, <coughs> but I think, you know, this is a football. This ain't no real football. It's a squeaky toy, right? And so many of us, your Christian life, you just squeak through life. You just squeak, you just barely make it. And God's like saying, are you ready to make a difference in the world? Come on, we need volunteers for the Easter outreach. You ready? Let's go change some lives. Man, our kids' church could really use disciplers and people who could love on kids and help them to meet Jesus. We need more greeters. Are you ready to read your Bible and grow and understand to develop a discipline of prayer? This is what we do. You're just barely squeaking through your walk with God. And Paul says, you've got to get hungry to win. He says, you run in such a way as to win. We're not going out for a jog here. We're not just practicing. We are running to win souls, to win lives. People are at stake. Are you hungry to win these people? If you want to win, right off, he says, you got to get a holy hunger for people. And he asks this question, and you need to ask yourself, am I playing to win or playing not to lose? Because there's a difference. They're not the same. One makes an impact and the other into heaven, squeaks into heaven. 
One thrives while one survives. One is dangerous while one plays it safe. One advances the kingdom while one simply holds ground. One scores in the kingdom of God and lives change while one just plays a life of simple defense. He says, listen, get hungry. Run to win. If you want to win lives, win souls, get hungry. Playing to win means taking risks, walks in faith. It steps out. It grows. It's intentional. It's proactive. It serves. It means you have a plan for your spiritual life. Do you have a desire to grow? Do you have a desire for lives? Paul says get a holy hunger and win. Want to win. Desire to win. Run to win. Listen, there are no participation trophies in heaven on this one. Hunger. The second thing he says, I don't run like someone running aimlessly, which is number two, we run with focus. What is our focus? People. It's the kingdom. See the prize, and we now we run toward it. See, some of you, you, you struggle with getting to work every day. You don't like your job you don't like your life, you don't enjoy maybe your family and the things that are going on, and you're just barely making it. Listen, Paul says, hey, listen, focus on the lives that are in front of you. You don't run aimlessly. You don't get up and wander to work. Look at the person across the table from you. Look at that person in that hallway, that cubicle, uh, cubicle next to you, that family member, that neighbor. He says, focus on the prize. People are the prize. Focus on the prize. Focus on the people and then run like crazy. Focus and run. Some of you are running aimlessly every day with no purpose, no direction. You're wandering through life and you'll end up nowhere as a result. And then some of you are running towards the wrong prizes. Some of you are chasing money, career, you're searching for self-esteem and acceptance in relationships. You're searching and chasing education or hobbies. Those are all perishable rewards. The only thing that is imperishable are people. That's the reward. That's the prize we run to win. Listen, seasoned saints, you want to win souls? Run. New believers, you want to see your family touched by the gospel? Run. Mature Christians, you're ready for a change in your life and to see growth in our church and in your life? Run. Don't be disqualified. See them, run to them. Focus. And then he says this, verse 25, he says, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. In verse 30, 27, he says, I discipline my body and keep it under control. So there's hunger, there's focus, and then there's discipline. Discipline. The games in Corinth, by the way, required that you sign a contract that you were working out for at least 10 months prior. There were no walk-ons in the Isthmus games. You know, today in the Boston Marathon, there's two years of pre-qualifying before you can even get in it. It's said that the current Boston Marathon that's coming is already full. And it takes two years of pre-qualifications because there are no walk-ons. You have to discipline your life if you want to win in this life. And you have to discipline your life if you want to win the people in your life. It takes discipline. It means saying yes to some things and saying you no know to some things because you have your eye on the prize of your kids or of your parents or of your siblings or of that neighbor or of that coworker or that friend that you've known since you were a kid. Your eyes are on them, and you're going to do whatever it takes, whatever discipline is required to win that life, to win that. I got my eye on the prize, and I will do whatever it takes as to win as many as possible. And I'll be whoever I need to be as long as it uh, uh, obeys the scriptures in obedience and humility to win anyone and some if possible. Discipline. 
Verse 27, he says, I strike a blow to my body, I make it my slave. That means I bring it under submission so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Here's the fourth thing. Not only is there hunger, not only is it about focus and discipline, but it is about sacrifice. It is about giving up things. Discipline is about doing things. Sacrifice is about giving up things. There's a there's things that happen. Paul, again, goes, says, I should be paid, but I give this up to win you. I have the right, like all the other apostles, but I'm giving this right up for you. Will you give up rights, he says, to win anybody, to win some? Man, when you're out with somebody and you're confronted with a gray area, should I do this or should I not? You need to ask yourself, is this beneficial for my race? Is this helping them in their race with God? You know, there was a game in the 80s and 90s, uh, a boxing game that I used to play when I was younger, and you'd hit the button and it would go, mighty blow, mighty blow, jab, jab. Anybody ever play that game? It's like, mighty blow, mighty blow. And you'd hit it and you're like, mighty blow, mighty blow, jab, 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 jab. Hey, I love that sound, mighty blow, mighty blow. And I think of this. Paul says this, he says, man, there is an enemy, and I'm not fighting the air. He says, I'm not fighting the air, there's an enemy. We have an enemy, and he's not our friend, and he seeks to destroy and kill our families and those that we love. But Paul says there's a bigger enemy than just the enemy of the devil. He says this, I don't just fight the air. He says, I strike a blow to myself. See, sometimes the biggest enemy to your friend, to your family member, to your coworker, to someone meeting Jesus, the biggest enemy is not the devil, it's you. You're the biggest enemy for some. Paul says, you know what? I don't just beat the air. I know the enemy is. He says, and I strike a blow to myself. I bring myself under submission. Because sometimes I'm the biggest deterrent for their own salvation. The enemy is me. And this is at the heart of these three chapters. And chapter 10 closes this conversation. This is the heart. Is this, I have got to be willing to get rid of myself. I've got to be willing to get rid of myself so that you can find yourself in Jesus. Galatians chapter 2, Paul says to the churches in Galatia, in verse 20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, in this body, in this life, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Are you willing to get rid of yourself? So I have a question for you as we close. What are you running for? And what is the prize your eyes are on? Don't get sucked into the stuff in front of you. Keep your eyes on the people in front of you. Get a hunger for their soul. Focus on them as people. Discipline yourself. Sacrifice what is necessary. And you will win as many as possible. This is the big picture. One day we'll all cross the finish line if we're Christians. But who will be there with me that I brought? Who's going to, that's my reward. When I cross that finish line, the crown I receive is going to be you. And anybody else that I met and was able to pour into that received the gospel. Who is going to be at the finish line with you. What are you willing to say no to so that they might say yes to the gospel? Let's pray. God, I thank you, Lord, that you didn't call us to squeak through life. God, that we're not here just to survive. God, I think of our church, Lord. 
God, I think of our church, God, that we're not here just to have another service, but to win souls. God, we're not just doing an outreach, but to win souls, to win as many as possible. God, we're not just having a service and singing songs and another message, but God, it's about winning the people that are in front of us. If you're here right now and you don't know Jesus, I want you to know how much he loves you, cares for you, and how much we love you. And short of sin, we will do anything it takes to help you to see his love for you. He cares for you today so much that he gave his life for you. And you can be new. You can be forgiven. You can have a fresh start. We just take a moment and say yes to Jesus now. God, thank you. If that's you and you want a fresh start today, just say thank you, Jesus, for loving me. Thank you. In your own words, say, Jesus, forgive me of my sin. Jesus, I need you now more than ever. Forgive me. Give me a new life. In Jesus' name. Feel my heart, feel my life. I'm yours. And I want to talk to you Christians who are here as your heads are bowed. Some of you, you've been pursuing the wrong things, pursuing position, possessions rather than the people in front of you. And God's convicting you today to win, to win souls, to win lives, to win in such a way. God, I pray that you deep, go deep inside of us and convict us and give us a holy hunger. If you're a Christian, just say, Jesus, give me a holy hunger for people. Go ahead and tell them in your own words. God, give me a hunger for people, a hunger for the lost. God, a hunger for the hurting, a hunger, God, for those that are just struggling, God. God, give me a hunger. Woe to me if I don't preach. Thank you for listening to the Living Way Church podcast. If you enjoyed this message, we hope you come visit us in Garland, Texas. For directions and more information about the church, go to www.livingwaychurch.cc.